Hi. Hi, you okay? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Cool. Uh, right. We have, I think it's three more stations to go through. Um, oops. Second one, second. Right. Okay, cool. Um, so I thought we could start with the COVID one, so station four. Um, okay, so um, let's read it through again. So the members of your class at college have been asked to book COVID-19 vaccinations. A minority of this group has said that they won't get the vaccine as, oops, um, sorry, a minority of the group said they won't get the vaccine as they feel that it's of little use to them as they're unlikely to have, to have serious effects from contracting COVID. Two of the students are friends of yours. One stated they're uncomfortable with the idea of getting an mRNA-based vaccine as they had heard that it altered their DNA, and the other claimed it wasn't necessary as they already had COVID. How would you convince them to have the vaccine? So, yeah, I'll give you a min minute or so again, and, um, yeah. All right. All right, cool. I think I got some some ideas. Okay. Okay. So, um, first, first things first. I mean, we clearly have uh, two friends, um, but nonetheless, you know, you're not going to want to come across as you know disrespectful or anything when it comes towards um, anything medical related. Uh, so you're going to be as you know as polite and as empathetic as you possibly can, uh, especially if you know uh, they are. Uh, stressing out about these topics. So um, to start off with the first um, first one of my friends who um, believes that um, getting an mRNA based vaccine uh, alters the DNA. Uh, it's important to um, educate him a little bit further on the topic uh, in order for him to be more convinced uh, and more open to getting vaccinated. So 
uh, one of the things that I would mention to him is the fact that mRNA-based vaccines don't actually, um, um, they don't um, enter the nucleus of the cells uh, because they don't enter the nucleus of the cells where DNA is usually stored. Um, it will not have an effect on, um, it will not alter your DNA. Uh, what it does is, you know, I'll have to explain him uh, a little bit further, uh, but try and keep it, you know, as simple as possible, you know. Um, it doesn't actually enter the nucleus, which is, you know, where DNA is stored, um, so it won't alter your DNA. Uh, what it does is goes to these special um, proteins called ribosomes, and the ribosomes manufacture uh, mRNA, um, the, the specific, they code for the antigens that will then be uh, destroyed in the future and so something like that you just just explain to him you know um, it, it doesn't have uh, any kind of effects on your you know your DNA as such um, and so with the uh, my other friend who would say you know uh, he's already had COVID so he believes he's uh, immunized against it so you need to explain to him that uh, COVID can always mutate, um, and it's important that, you know, not just for himself to be safe uh, for any future variations of COVID-19 virus, it's important that his friends are also vaccinated, uh, not his friends, himself, he's vaccinated, uh, and he's, by vaccinating himself, he's protecting perhaps his uh, family, loved ones, etc., so he's got himself um, uh, a herd immunity essentially being developed. And, you know, in the process of, you know, talking to him, I'd want to keep him, you know, uh, keep it as simple as possible, um, you know, not use too many fancy words, just uh, uh, calmly open up to, um, some suggestions to him as to why he would need to continue to take um, the COVID-19 vaccine, even though he's already had it in the past. And that is for the reasons he's got family, he could, he might want to protect it. Uh, as well as, you know, we know that COVID-19 mutates, and I think those are the two main things. Okay, and um, do you think that the COVID-19 vaccine should be made compulsory for all healthcare workers? So, uh, COVID-19 vaccine, I think that there should be some exceptions that should, um, that should you know, uh, be taken into consideration uh, when uh, talking about COVID-19 vaccines for all healthcare professionals. Um, I think that there are some cer certain examples which could um, uh, perhaps, for example, um, pregnant women or, um, you know, well, for, for the majority, pregnant women should be considered to be um, given a little bit more kind of lenience towards, you know, getting a vaccine or not, because if not, um, then, you know, you don't, I wouldn't fire them for that. I think that, they, that there are some certain cases where, although patient um, healthcare is a responsibility of all of the NHS workers, I think that we need to consider the fact that it wouldn't be fair to just straight away fire everybody, especially if, uh, if they have uh, specific reasons for, you know, not getting the vaccine. And... Um Okay, anything else you can say other than just pregnant women? Uh, I think if you've got an allergic reaction to the vaccine as well, it should be um, pretty obvious that you should not be taking the vaccine. Um, 
because, well, for obvious reasons, really. But you need to, um, I think these are the kind of scenarios where I would say, you know, we could exercise perhaps more um, antiseptic methods uh, of uh, safety around um, hospitals uh, for these uh, special, um, I'd say, cases. Uh, for example, you know, mask wearing, um, you know, hand sanitizers, all these kind of things. Um, perhaps um, for uh, for those that have been exempt from the vaccine, we could probably put something more uh, along the lines of perhaps a stricter kind of regulated method, perhaps in order to solve this problem. Um, and yeah, that's that's one other example I'd say. So with that question, I was trying. I was going to go more with like the the ethical. I mean, I get I, I agree with what you said, but like an eth the eth ethical side of things first, going to the four pillars. I would have done that first, um, and then you give your overall opinion, um, and then you can even you can talk about some exemptions if um, if need be. So I would have like gone through. So how about could you go through it using the four pillars of medical ethics? Um, if I asked you the ethical question of would it be made compulsory for all healthcare workers to have the COVID nineteen vaccine? Yeah. So. Um... For example, um, sorry, not for example. So if we go over the four me medical ethics pillars, um, I think the main ones that we need to take into consideration for uh, a pro-vaccine approach would be, um, so um, autonomy and a, oh, sorry, hang on, not autonomy, uh, non-malficience and justice for um, pro vaccine and then um autonomy and um beneficence for non-vaccine um, no, so that's not the way you'd go go about these ethical scenarios you literally just go through each pillar and elaborate on it regarding to the the scenario you wouldn't like split it up i would just go through, just go through each of the pillars and say with regards to autonomy Blah, blah blah this this is how it can be argued with regards to beneficence etc that's how you should go about the pillars all right okay let me try that again then um all right so uh let's talk about um autonomy first right so does it respect the nhs workers i believe it should um if if you're um forcing them to have a vaccine obviously autonomy is being disregarded here um, and it's important that NHS workers are kept um, in a more kind of, you know, respected manner as such. And I think that there's some very critical exceptions that can be made in order to, um, uh, th that would require them to be exempt from uh, uh, vaccines. Um, and so uh, autonomy in this case, um, that's how that would be affected. Uh, in terms of um, non-malficience, uh, does it harm the, the NHS workers? Uh, probably not as much. Uh, depends. Perhaps the, um, the NHS worker has a, a certain, um, you know, maybe they, are, um, they have an allergic reaction, for example, to the vaccine. Uh, that could be an example of how, you know, non-malficience is being affected because obviously that would harm the NHS worker. 
I think it's pretty important that we take that uh, into consideration here because, you know, if you're giving someone a vaccine that's going to hurt them, um, then you're obviously not respecting that medical ethics pillar. Um, <coughs> moving on from that, uh, if we have, if we take a look at uh, beneficence, will it benefit them? So obviously, uh, most for doctors, for example, they take the Hippocratic Oath in order to, um, so uh, in order to say that they will always try the, in everything in their best interests to protect their patients. Uh, that's pretty critical here. Uh, and by taking the vaccine, you could argue that, yes, okay, so uh, it will keep not only the doctor safe, but the patients that he's working with safe. Um, and that's one way I think beneficence can be affected. But perhaps it would be negatively affected in a sense as well, if we link this back to, um, you know, the fact that if you are in some way uh, going to have a negative, uh, I don't know, perhaps side effects or, you know, uh, and the, the, the vaccine is going to give more of a negative impact on your life rather than a positive one, firing the NHS worker for those reasons could be considered as uh, not exactly beneficence because I don't see how getting fired will, you know, how is that a benefit? So um, in that sense, I don't think that, you know, um, that the beneficence is something that needs to be uh, explored a little bit more deeply here. Uh, but as I said before, it always depends on the situations that might kind of arise. Um, and so, OK, so moving on to the last one, justice. So, you know, this could cause some problems um, in, in both ways. So, I mean taking the vaccine for the NHS workers, uh, yes, they are going to be protecting the patient and they will be, um, you know, they will be having some, um, they will be, uh, yes, yeah, so they'll be protecting the patient and they'll be uh, themselves protected uh, in which way they're, they're kind of go um, adding to this herd immunity concept uh, and which is mostly positive but if you don't take the vaccine in this case, um, the way that this will affect the community is that you'll have more doctors in the um, other regions who perhaps they would see that these guys aren't taking the vaccine and they'll be like, well, why do we have to take the vaccine? And you'll have this kind of domino effect as a sense, which is not exactly what you want. Um, there's a lot of kind of situations. That's just one, for example, that could arise in terms of justice for uh, medical ethics pillars um, in which, you know, not getting the vaccine can be viewed as a very bad thing for the wider community. Um, but yeah, we have to, in summary, in summary, we have to consider all four of them in order to come into um, an evaluated and good decision uh, as to whether NHS workers would need to take a vaccine or not. But um, as I've expressed before, it depends on the situation, you know, with someone who might, um, you know, uh, who with an NHS worker who is not taking the vaccine because they know they'll get an allergic reaction for it is going to be a different situation to whereas uh, an NHS worker with um, who, who's just not taking the vaccine because they don't want to, you know, it, it's, it's two very different situations where, you know, you need to consider these things. Okay, and um, 
Okay, fine. Uh, so, so what would your approach be then? Um, if you were like in charge of, if you of like all healthcare professionals, what would your approach be then regarding the vaccine? So I think that what I would do is uh, personally, uh, I'd take the individuals that perhaps have um, very uh, special circumstances as to whether they, uh, as to why they can't take the vaccine, and I would uh, perhaps um, uh, introduce a, a perhaps a new regulation where you uh, are normal antiseptic uh, methods of you know. Uh, reducing the spe- the the spread of the pandemic, you know, i.e., masks, uh, hand sanitizers, you know, uh, and just you know the daily good hygiene things, which is to wash hands. Or perhaps introduce a more kind of stricter method to this, where, for example, we would need to perhaps after every sixty minute intervals, um, the NHS worker would need to uh, perhaps go into a certain room, which um, you know, perhaps decontaminates them um, of any potential uh, COVID-19 virus that they might have. So, you know, um, I don't know, that could be just like a like a nice clean room, which is, you know, full, filled with these, you know, hand sanitizers and each NHS worker that has the special circumstance will have to, you know, spend some time in this um, in this room, uh, just making sure that they're clean and, you know, and in good shape before moving on to seeing the next patient i think that would be a a, a better and um yeah a better alternative as to uh firing the nhs workers for you know um for not doing uh for not taking the vaccine causing you know widespread unemployment and you know it's not really good uh, and viable solution um and you know with the people who obviously take the vaccines they're allowed to continue um you know they're not they're not going to be just walking around, not, um, you know, being hygienic. Obviously, we'll need to ensure that they also keep up to uh, normal uh, hospital regulations in terms of, you know, washing your hands, you know, basically common sense there. But with the special circumstances, I would say, uh, make a, introduce a new regulation or a rule uh, in which perhaps uh, a harsher and more stricter approach is taken as to... Um, their hygiene in a sense okay yeah all right so um if we go from the beginning in terms of like how do you convince them to have the vaccine um you would first say okay i've got two friends and they both um are not wanting to have the vaccine for two different reasons so the first friend um is uncomfortable about the um mrna based vaccine so first so i think if they want to see like I think before you suddenly jump into explaining it, how it works, I would probably first try to understand more about their perspective and where they heard that it can alter their DNA. Just try to, whenever there's any situation that arises um, where someone's worried about something, before you launch in and give all the information, you have to understand how much they know already so and what their concerns are so you can tackle them. So you first ask, like, um, find out where they heard this and how they're feeling about it then you would um, take it from there and then you would explain how the um, COVID-19 mRNA based vaccine works 
Um, you don't have to be so tech- technical with ribosomes, etc. But you, but you literally just say that it doesn't enter the nucleus. It, um, I mean, however, you, yeah, something like that. It doesn't enter the nucleus. Therefore, it can't alter the DNA. It targets. Um, uh, what does it target? It binds. It binds to cells to uh, create a protein, which. Or whatever. I mean, I can't remember the mechanism, but yeah, you would explain it in like simple English, whatever, and then make sure that they understood the information and then see if they have any further concerns or any other questions and that, that you can try to answer them. Um, but try to be empathetic and, and understand that these are valid concerns and don't dismiss them or disregard them. And then same with the next person who's saying that they've already had COVID, you would just kindly explain that COVID is a virus um, and like the flu, they can mutate, which is why with the flu, we have, with the flu, we have vac- different vaccines every single year. COVID-19 vaccines can mutate. Uh, not COVID-19 vaccines, the virus can mutate. And this is obviously seen with the different variants that are being present. And by having COVID-19, um, one of the variants doesn't protect you from having the other another variant. And studies show um, it's always good to throw in your own um, your own wider reading um, and statistics. Uh, common statistics is, but it says that studies show that X amount you get X amount of protection just by having your own natural infection versus X amount which is a higher amount by having a vaccination. So you can always throw in those statistics to encourage them to have the vaccine. Um, and then further questions about should it be made compulsory then you would go to the four pillars and I think just be a bit more to the point and concise I felt like you were rambling on a little bit so you would say okay with regards to autonomy everyone has the right to make their own decisions and they shouldn't be forced into having the vaccine if they choose not to so we need to respect their wishes and that's all you need to say then you move on to beneficence in terms of beneficence acting in um in this case patient's best interest if you take it from a, a, a stance from the patient back in the patient's best interest it's best that um healthcare providers do have um the vaccine in order to reduce um transmission and also it acts in the patient's best interest if they're back if the if doctors are vaccinated because then they're less likely to have severe symptoms and have t- less likely to need to take time off work so that um, which therefore reduces the chance of having a negative impact on patient care. In terms of non-maleficence, so not causing any harm, you could cause harm to doctors um, if you do force them to have vaccines, if, they, if they're not eligible for the vaccine, like if they're pregnant or, or immunocompromised or have certain illnesses that prevent them from having the vaccine, or if they're allergic. Um, and in terms of justice, no one should, um, it's not made compulsory for the whole of the population, so it's unfair to say that only um healthcare professionals in order to keep their jobs must have the vaccine everyone's entitled to a choice and there may be certain beliefs and and reasons as to why patient people may not have the vaccine and then give your overall opinion um whatever it might be and i suppose you could give a solution like you said about like having certain rooms that are covid secure and that even though people may be vaccinated these doesn't make them exempt they should still be following the rules um of the hospital regulations um yeah so content wise like i I, you got the point but i think you need to be a bit more concise and and to the point um when you're when you're elaborating on this um okay right any questions regarding that one
Uh, no, I think, yeah, I was kind of waffling, to be honest, quite a bit for all the last bits. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first one was, wasn't too bad, I don't think. I I did kind of do the content, but uh, I know you mentioned that um, you want to listen to where they're coming from. This scenario, it's not role player, is it? So how am I going to do that? So for which part of it? So you know how in the first bit you said... Um, you want to uh, listen to their side of the argument a little bit more. Yeah, um, yeah, because you're role-playing, how do you show that? I, I know, it's a weird question. I think you just have to say it, um, if, because I don't think it is a role-play scenario. Um, okay. I think, I just, I think, I think just want to, yeah, I think you would just say it, I suppose. All right, that's I'm not fine. sure, yeah. Okay, that's fine, cool. Um, right, okay, uh... Which ones? What's the role play? And then, okay, we can do the NHS teams one. Okay, so a patient undergoing treatment for cancer presents to the emergency department of their local hospital with complications due to their treatment. So, who may be involved in patient care and management in this scenario? Okay, so um, the first part. Um, I'd say the main person, the person that kind of initiates the the beginning of this treatment is going to be the patient themselves. I think it's pretty important to mention that as they're the ones who um, are the first um, in the line to identify the they are struggling here. Uh, the next step for that patient will be to go to the uh, their GP, uh, which will refer them to a consultant and they will then... Um, do everything in their best interest to try and treat the patient. So we've got many different sectors involved here. We've got uh, pathologists, uh, we've got um, mental health um, counsellors, therapists, and we've also got ourselves some radiologists, nurses, and it's a very wide multidisciplinary team that is working together in a sense to uh, treat this patient. What is the role of the GP? So the GP uh, will, uh, obviously he will take in the patient and he will start to ask questions about what the patient is suffering from and uh, any problems that they might be having. And the patient will talk to this GP and they will uh, tell them the issues that they might be having. So possible side effects, possible uh, diseases, um, uh, any kind of you know coughs anything it, it can be anything basically and so uh, the consultant will sit there not the consultant the GP will sit there and he will listen to this take some notes and then um, he will try and using the information that the patient has provided them uh, come with the best possible um, uh, not treatment plan but um, identification of the uh, of what the patient is suffering from. So for in this case, if it's cancer, he might refer them to a hospital in order to uh, perhaps confirm his initial uh, thoughts that this could be cancer and that could be done using uh, a radiologist and a pathologist um, who will then uh, examine the skin if it's a growth on the skin and uh, determine whether or not it's cancer. Um, and what... What do you understand by the term holistic medicine, holistic care? Um, 
Can I have a minute? Yeah. Okay, yeah, um, I, I'm not exactly completely convinced on this one, but um, uh, I think, so holistic medicine is, um, is, is it the uh, consideration of the complete uh, person and the management and prevention of the disease, uh, say, physically, uh, psychologically, spiritually, socially, uh, basically uh, an approach to... Um, um to the to a form of uh, so okay so holistic medicine is a a form of healing that considers the per the whole person body mind spirit and emotions um rather than just targeting a specific area of of said patient's perhaps body yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. it takes in the full account of the patient so, um, and what, um, do you think this is a good way, a good, a good, do you think holistic medicine is useful? Uh, yes, definitely, 100%, because um, not only is the patient going to have um, a better kind of, uh, perhaps he'll be more relieved as to the fact that he knows that he's being treated by multiple healthcare professionals, um, and they could take comfort in that, the fact that many people are working uh, as best as they can uh, to heal this patient. But um, So that would be one way in which it would be really good for the patient. But also, you know, um, it'll be good for the patient in, in terms of physically as well, because, you know, he's got, um, we've got an efficient form of treatment uh, that can target multiple areas of, um, of, the, of said patient. Uh, in a relatively, hopefully, uh, as I said before, efficient and um, in in fast time as well. Um. So in holistic care, yeah, you you may they may it may be performed by having many different healthcare professionals involved in their care. But I think when we say hel- caring for patients holistically, it means the individual doctor should be caring for the patient holistic holistically. It's like a skill that a patient that a doctor should have. So it's not quite literally having a whole MDT team involved. It's saying that each doctor shouldn't just see the patient as an an episode of disease, but they should be considering the patient's wider determinants of health in order to best their quality of life. Um, So like, so a consultant, a GP, they should all be caring for the patient holistically, um, you know, thinking of their mental health, um, trying to understand their lifestyle and stuff like that. Um, which leads me to ask, if you think about caring for the, this, this patient, for argument's sake, someone who's got cancer holistically, how much, what other considerations might, I don't know, the consultant or the GP have for the patient? Wait, um... What, 
what else would they be? So if you're talking about holistic medicine, you went, you mentioned uh, holistically caring for someone. You mentioned caring for other aspects of the patient's health and life. Um, so which other specialists do you think could be involved in a patient's care, especially in this case, the person's got cancer? Uh, well, or we can always argue that it would be the patient himself and uh, possible family members. Um, yeah, but who, um, so I'm saying someone, how do you think someone with cancer might be feeling? Did I not say um, counsellors or... Oh, I, maybe you did, so I can't remember, but that's what I was getting at. That's fine. Um, yeah, just the mental health support and things like that. Um, you might have mentioned that. I probably just missed it. Um, okay, fine. Um, okay. Uh, what additional question? Okay, yeah, then I'll probably lead on and ask... Um, so talking about cancer and complications to achieving. Okay, what... If this... What would you do if this patient is asking um, the doctor to, to withdraw care so that his life can end? What What's your viewpoints on euthanasia? Euthanasia, okay. So, um, so when making, wait, is this a question uh, based related to the to this scenario, or is it just personal thoughts and opinions on euthanasia? I think I think generally it's just it's following on from this scenario, but generally, and it's an ethical scenario if you think about it. So I'd probably go through it using the four pillars and then give your overall opinion. All right. Okay. Um, so even though it's asked uh, personally, you don't you don't really answer it like that. You just say it's because it's an, it's like whenever you ask your opinion on something, you don't immediately go into your opinion. You give both sides of it. And then you give your opinion, but you don't have to go by the four pillars. But it, but it, it looks better too because it the four pillars is a good framework to to weigh up the pros and cons, if that makes sense. But if I ask you anything like, what are your views on um, abortion, or what are your views views on, um, or on like breaking confidentiality or whatever, um, you you could just say like. I think it's important to look at the pros, the cons, or like both sides. So arguments for, arguments for against, and my overall opinion is this. Because even when you write like um, an essay, even at school or whatever, you never only write from one perspective. You give both sides and then you give your your own answer, your own opinion. So in this case, I'm asking, what are your views on euthanasia? Don't, I would, your views would show both sides and then you'd give your overall opinion. That's how I'd go about it. Okay, um, all right, uh, I'll just think about this quickly. Um,
Okay, alright, um... Let's, let's do this then. Okay, so what are your views on euthanasia? Okay, so in order to answer that question, uh, I'd need to talk about the four pillars of ethics in medicine um, in order to come to a conclusion. Uh, so first, what we'd need to talk about would be autonomy. Uh, does it show respect for the patient and their right to make decisions? So obviously, every patient is entitled to um, their own decisions and um, their rights. So obviously, we need to talk about what if they want euthanasia, then we'd need to respect that. And um, well, according to the pillars of ethics, uh, we'd need to respect that patient's uh, decision. Um, and uh, so autonomy, I would say, is a more pro-euthanasia uh, pro, uh, uh, topic because if we've got a patient who says that he wants euthanasia, uh, then obviously that's his decision. And um, as healthcare professionals, we need to respect that decision. Uh, next, we have non-malficients. Uh, does it harm the patient? So obviously you are assisting in the death of the patient, which would mean that you are harming the patient. Um, so non-malficients, not really too much to say about that because obviously euthanasia is the act of killing of a patient who uh, essentially has no hope of a cure. Um, so obviously non-malficients would be going against the pillars of ethics uh, as you're assist, um, assisting in the dying of the patient. Uh, next we've got beneficents. Does it benefit the patient? I think this is a more uh, biased pillar because we've got 50-50 in a sense. We've got 50% uh, chance, um, I would say, of this pillar would say, okay, well, uh, it's the patient's decision, right? Uh, he's made the choice that he wants to undergo euthanasia and, you know, um, whereas from autonomy we said we need to respect that, in beneficence we need to understand that the patient, well, depending on the circumstance, hopefully um, the reason why, you know, he's asking for euthanasia is most likely not uh, because of any bad malintent or, um, yeah, malintent made by the doctors. It's hopefully their own decision and... Um, we're gonna it's most likely um suggested that the patient uh doesn't have a cure or they um the doctors have tried everything for the patient but yet he will still be suffering in the future and you know uh, an example of this could probably be if the patient is you know paralyzed from the neck down and you know he he hasn't got control of his body anymore um, and the doctors can't find a way to find a solution to this or to get him to regain control of his body. And that's an example, I would say, where beneficence is, you know, uh, will it benefit the patient if they undergo the procedure? Uh, if they want it and, you know, nothing else can be done, then yes, I do think it can benefit the patient. But does it benefit the patient in terms of a medical perspective? Well, no, because you're killing them. Uh, so that's why I would say it's a 50-50 for beneficents. In terms of justice, um, are there consequences in the wider community? Um, I think, yes, there will be. Um, we've got uh, family members also that, uh, you know, hopefully they'll be made aware of the patient's wishes to undergo euthanasia. 
and we'd need to um, acknowledge the fact that they'll have um, that there'll be an effect on them, um, and that's something that's pretty important here also to be considered in a sense. Um, and yeah. So, what's your overall opinion then? Okay, so my overall opinion would be that euthanasia should only be um, really an option if there is a very special circumstance as to whether the patient, you know, um, is suffering. Um, so my opinion would be if, uh, if the doctors know that they can't do anything else for this patient to heal them or to, to fix them up, um, to treat them, um, perhaps they have a terminal illness and they don't want to undergo the pain later on in their, uh, in the progression of their disease, then I should I, I think that euthanasia should be an option for them because it's if something if nothing else can be done for this patient's health then I think that euthanasia should be an option but all the other times the doctor should be trying to heal the patient and they should be doing that to the best of their possible ability because I think the euthanasia should be the very very last thing that should happen to the patient um, if nothing else works. How can you assess if that's the last resort, like in each patient? Like, how would, how would you know that nothing more can be done for that patient? It's always is going to depend on what the patient is going to be suffering from. So, for example, if the patient has um, terminal cancer, for example, which is clearly identified at a stage at some point by medical professionals we can confirm straight away that you know this is this is a terminal illness and at some point this patient is going to die you can link this to mental diseases as well for example parkinson's um and other other scenarios for example uh well perhaps uh, more away from terminal illnesses uh perhaps paralyzation uh where the the where the patient you know doesn't have control of his body anymore um, that should also be pretty easily identifiable, I would say. Um, and for most of these cases, you know, um, I think that I think it would be quite quite easily identifiable whether or not this patient will, whether or whether there is anything else that can be done to help the patient. Um. Okay. Um. So the only thing I'm just thinking of is that um, no. So um, is that um. Pain, pain, and people suffering is subjective to each individual person. So you, um, so there are some downsides to grouping patients in terms of okay, if you've got a terminal illness, you now have the permission to like end your life if you want to, and grouping people up based on their disease. There could be people who have like I don't know, like another chronic disease like um, diabetes with subsequent amputations of their legs, etc., who are having such a bad quality of life, and then they would not apparently they may not fit the criteria for euthanasia um and that can be like a slippery slope and um can lead to more inequalities i suppose so i think there's also some considerations to to put in place um because um uh as well so so no i get exactly what you're saying um you know i think obviously it should be a last resort everything should have been tried um other arguments as to you know why it's made so 
reasons why some people may be against euthanasia um, is because it eliminates the chance of there being hope that um, they might that people might, might get better, their quality of life might, life might improve. And um, there's also risk for abuse by family members, especially um, if they want to just get rid of this person um, to, to reduce their own burden, uh, reduce them being a burden on themselves. And also there might be some financial gain. Um, there might be abuse on uh, the power of doctors as well if euthanasia were to be made legal and also i suppose it kind of creates a culture whereby okay if you're suffering it may be acceptable to have your life ended and therefore people might be wanting it to turn to this or may find the concept of ending one's life acceptable so um so yeah there is no right or wrong answer um and i agree with what you're saying um it's just important to consider that um other people uh, that um by saving it only for people with terminal illnesses, it will still open up another can of worms for people with other illnesses that may not necessarily meet the terminal illness, like through cancer sort of um, criteria, but they will equally have a lot of suffering. Um, but no, I agree with what you're saying. Um, so it's important to be super balanced initially um, throughout and then at the end, you give your own opinion. So they won't ask you, like, so when I asked you this question, you should have thought after you've gone through the pillars and your and all the reasonings to come to your own conclusion. And you should have come to your own conclusion without me having to ask you for what, what's your overall opinion. Um, okay, fine. Um, right, so I thought finally we can just go on to the role play. So um, you're a first year medical student and your family have asked you to FaceTime with a family friend who is living alone and has been having problems breathing. You, you FaceTime the family friend and are concerned that they don't sound well. You tell the family friend that you will FaceTime them later to check how they are. Before you call them again, you contact NHS 111. After you describe the symptoms to them, they suggest that you call for an ambulance. You know that the family friend is worried about going into hospital as their partner died last year in hospital. In this role play, you are asked to FaceTime the family friend and attempt to convince them to let you call for an ambulance. And you'll be assessed on your interaction with the family friend. Okay, I'll give you like a couple of minutes about how you're going to approach this and what, um, how, how, like, yeah. Can I um, ask you actually, what, what, what are yeah. your thoughts on uh, euthanasia? Mine? Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, I see both sides to it. Um, I think that I, I'm not pro euthanasia, but I'm not completely anti it. I just think that if it were to be made legal, I think there'd have to be lots of laws, regulations, and policies put in place so that it's completely not up to abuse, and that um, it's solely based on the patient's decision. There's no family input in terms of um making the decision without the patient's consent, witnessed um, interactions and conversations about euthanasia um, and policies put in place that they have to meet certain criteria um, for their lives to be ended. So X amount of duration of symptoms, um, if, if there's absolutely nothing else that can be tried, both within the NHS and off the NHS. Um, I just think there's so much potential for there to be abuse of the system. Um, but on the other hand, it is made, it is available abroad. Um, 
I, I don't know. It's, it's I, I don't know what my answer would be. Um, I think, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. But I personally think, um, uh, what do I think? I don't think it should be made legal at this moment in time, okay. personally. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so the role play one, um, I'll give you, like, two minutes or so. All right, So you're on FaceTime now, so you you have to initiate it all. All right, okay, all right. So, uh, cool. All right. Um, I'll just I'll just refer to you as Anishka then. Um, yeah, that's. Okay, so uh, so Anishka, um, I understand we we had a conversation a couple of minutes ago, uh, where you um, where you told me about some of your symptoms and that you were struggling and you were having some problems breathing. Um, and you know i'm i'm a first year medical student and um obviously uh, i don't really feel as though i'm um uh, i don't have the knowledge enough to really come to a conclusion here as to what you're suffering from so i um i do apologize that i didn't let you know about this sooner but um i did have a quick phone call with the nhs 111 service and i was with um I, I called them and they told me that, um, that what the symptoms that you were presenting are quite concerning and they do suggest that I call for an ambulance. Um, you know I'm not going to go to hospital, so so why did you even do this in the first place? Yeah, so I just wanted to um, get, get a second opinion, as a sense, because as I said before, I'm only a first-year medical student and I'm not really... Um, I haven't got the knowledge to really assess you right now. Uh, so um, I understand, you know, that you might have some some um, some some issues with that. But I, I do believe that, you know, uh, it's quite important that we, we go to the hospital together and we can get this uh, checked out. Can't I just wait to see my GP? Why do I have to immediately go to hospital? I'm not feeling too bad anymore. I know. So the the problem here is is that when you have symptoms um, as 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 serious as those, it can they can perhaps subside at some point uh, in time, but they can reappear at a later stage. And if they do reappear, 
more often than not, they'll reappear in a more harsher manner. Yeah, but it's my choice and I don't want to, I just don't want to go to hospital. Okay, Nishka, I understand. Um, but could you perhaps give me um, a reason as to why you don't want to go to the hospital? You know, my husband, he he died when I when, when he went to the hospital. Um, you know this, like, um, he was only going for, like, a routine procedure and he just, he just got some silly infection in the hospital and I just can't have that happening to me. I'm not ready to go yet and I just, I'm not taking that chance. I understand. Um, I see that what, what you must be feeling, it must be really difficult to, to express in words and uh, such a tragedy has taken place and I'm really, uh, really sorry that this has happened. Um, and, you know, uh, perhaps a possible solution to this would be would you like me to come with you to provide moral support and perhaps we can talk to the doctors together? I mean, I just, I just, the whole point is I don't want to go into hospital. Is there any other way? Like, can't they come to me? Can't I? I just don't want to have to leave my house to go to a hospital. A hospitals bring back really bad memories for me and I just don't know if I can handle it. Of course, and I completely understand that, you know, this... That such a such a situation has occurred, you know, it's so so horrible. But would there be perhaps any anything that you're open to, or anything that I can do or provide, say, that could perhaps convince you to come to the hospital with me, so that we can get you checked out? I just, well, I think I I just I think the most important thing is I just don't want to be there for too long and I do definitely do want to stay overnight in a ward with all these other really sick people who can make me ill um I just don't want to stay overnight so if there's anything you can do to make sure that doesn't happen then I might be open to at least visiting the hospital well how about this um we go to the hospital and we get um a doctor to check out these symptoms that you're presenting and I can talk to the doctor hopefully um, also about this, uh, perhaps with a, on a phone call, and I could perhaps arrange at some point a certain um, time um, at which you'd want to be there, so that we can prevent staying overnight there on the ward. So you're saying 100% then I will not need to stay overnight? So obviously there aren't really any guarantees that I can be making here, as I'm not um, qualified uh, enough to... Uh, to be the organizer of the hospital but what I can do is have a talk to the doctor and try try everything I can to um, make sure that we can stay there for a, as a short amount of time as possible so that you feel a little bit more um, safe let's just put it that way okay fine I think I'll be okay with that excellent cool okay right so Jump from last time. Um, it's a FaceTime, you know. It's a normal conversation. So, um, you know, you're on FaceTime, so you would you wouldn't immediately go in. Um, it felt like for the first minute or two, it was just you talking, right? So you hadn't acknowledged me. You hadn't um asked me how I was doing. It was just you giving all this information, and that's kind of not how it should be done. It should be more you putting the ball into my court. You trying to get me to open up. You trying to like put the importance onto me so I felt uh, from the start you could have 
just said like hi Anishka how are you feeling today um whatever that's just a nice how that's how you're going when you FaceTime a friend anyway you're not going to suddenly just give them all this information you're going to just have a normal chit chat so or if you're doing a role play of any of any kind where you've got to break bad news you don't immediately go into it you have to warm them up a little bit so you should have just gone in saying like hi how are you doing um um uh, and then see how they're feeling at the moment. Just say, um, I remember you were telling me that you were feeling a bit breathless earlier on. Um, is that still the case? Um, and then just then so you just constantly want to have like a back and forth conversation. And then you can say, well, I was a bit concerned about about how you were feeling, so I just thought it would be best to ring up one 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 to see what they thought. Um, and they did suggest that we that we call you if that you go by ambulance to the hospital. Um, how does this, uh, is that okay with you? And you want to just constantly check in with the patient. Every time you give a bit of information, you want to check in with the friend. How, is, how are they reacting to that? Is there anything about that that's worrying them? And just spite size information, you know. Um, and every time when the person said that she was worried, you don't immediately try to reassure. You want to find out more about why. You did You did eventually ask, can you tell me a bit more like about that's worrying you? But you should have done that from the start. To, as soon as she expressed any concern or fear, even if, even obviously in the in your interview, it has a video on. So if the patient's giving facial expressions that show so much fear and anxiety, you've got to pick up on that and and on the nonverbal cues as well. And just say, like, I can see that you're really worried. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Um what's particularly worrying you is anything that you'd like us to do to make things better for you um blah 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 blah. um and just keep on following on from the the family friend the family friend is the one who will be directing the conversation actually not you should just be there to provide support and the actor will give you a hard time probably be very adamant about not going to hospital and i did like about how you said um it was good how you said like what what would you like us to do like to make it like asking the patient or the friend in this case to give their own suggestions as to how to make things better so it's good eventually you came to a compromise and it's good that you didn't give any guarantees either because you cannot guarantee that she won't stay overnight because you know it's based on clinical needs she might need to um so that was good you did get better throughout um you know opening up the suggestions and the questions but i think you could have started that from this very start um and, you know, what kind of skills do you think this role play is trying to assess in, in you? Empathy. Yep. Definitely. Anything else? Uh, um, maybe communication. What about communication? Uh, being a good active listener and um, being able to give off clear uh, instructions, perhaps. Yeah, precisely. Exactly. It's about how can you speak with empathy and with compassion and care, not being judgmental or just instructing the patient, this is what you have to do. And yeah, communication is a two way street. As long as you've got to communicate clearly and caringly, but you've also got to listen. So, yeah, so I just felt initially, especially, you could have let the patient do a bit more talking. Um, but other than that, I, I liked how you eventually started warming up and um, 